Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On this Ascension Day, I'm reminded of some of our favorite books and films and how they include coronation ceremonies at the end. Coronation ceremonies. It's when the hero of the story finally gets his or her due at the end of the story. It's, it's usually in the form of some crown or, or, or a reward of some kind. You know, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings has this feature in spades. Right? Last time I mentioned Lord of the Rings in a sermon, I got a nasty email. So please don't do that. All right? This is going to be a very general reference here. Uh, Peter Jackson's original film trilogy does a tremendous job of drawing out this theme at the end. You know, whenever Aragorn receives the kingdom, right? And everyone bows down to him. Uh, nations upon nations are gathered there and he receives the crown, that, the kingdom that was his the whole time, but the kingdom that was veiled. And perhaps the final touch there is the most moving, right? Is whenever the, the lowly hobbits are there and the lowly hobbits are exalted right alongside King Aragorn. The entire kingdom bows down to them as well because they too had triumphed in the tasks that were given to them. Now, Tolkien was a Christian, of course. He knew what he was doing whenever he wrote that scene. He was calling upon something. He was trying to remind us of something, the importance of this ascension of Jesus. And this is the type of thing that we see going on in his ascension, which was read from both of Luke's accounts in Acts and in Luke's gospel. This is a coronation ceremony. This is a king taking his rightful place on the throne, having won the victory by overcoming not just overwhelming odds, but impossible ones. This king had overcome sin, the devil, and the grave itself. And now this was the exclamation point to Easter Sunday. The punctuation at the end of the sentence. You know, you don't have a complete sentence if you don't have punctuation at the end. You don't have a proper finish to the redemptive work of Christ on the cross and in the empty tomb if you don't have an ascension. Jesus must receive the reward for his suffering and his victory. So he ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of God, to share in that glory with his Father that he had with the Father before the world even began, as we will hear in our gospel lesson this coming Sunday. But our epistle lesson this evening from Ephesians really helps us to explore some of the implications of the ascension. And it's upon those implications that I'd like to meditate this evening. First, I'd like us to consider what it means that Jesus is head over all things. Now, this is pretty par for the course for St. Paul. He usually writes in these ridiculously long run-on sentences. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed that about Paul, but that's what today's Ephesians lesson is. It's a really long run-on sentence. Pastor Heckman handled it beautifully with all the commas, the breath, the, the pause, everything you needed to do to make it make sense, right? But here's near the, near the end of this beautiful but painfully long sentence, here's what Paul says. 
He says this of Jesus. He says, God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. So there's one important piece here that if we're not careful, we'll we'll miss. And the first thing that I want you to notice here is St. Paul's use of the term Christ. God raised Christ from the dead. God exalted Christ to the right hand of power and put all things under the feet of Christ. You know, whenever John speaks of Jesus early on in his gospel, at the beginning of his gospel, he calls him the Word. He calls him the Son of God. Because this is who he was before everything came into being. He was God the Word who was in the bosom of the Father. Whenever he became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was given a name, Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And this title, Christ, which means anointed one, this title was appointed to him from eternity past, but he received that title in time. He was named Jesus the Christ because he was going to do the work of the long-awaited Messiah, and he was going to save God's people from their sins. But he would do it as God in human flesh, Christ. So when St. Paul talks about Christ, He's talking about the incarnate one. He's talking about the word become flesh. Here's why I bring this up. Because if we have a Jesus who is God and not man, then the implications of the ascension really aren't all that earth shattering. We would simply have God as head over all things. No duh, right? By definition, this is simply the way things are. God rules over everything. We know that. We confess that in the first article of the creed. But here, in the ascension of Jesus, in the ascension of Christ, something new is happening. Something new. We have one who is both God and man in one person. Now risen from the dead. Now ruling over all things. Get this, church. We have a man who has been given the name that is above every name. We have a man who is the head over all things. What if this God-man is one who is full of wrath and hell-bent on vengeance? It seems to be the way that St. Peter preached the resurrection and the ascension at Pentecost. Right? He stood up in Acts 2 and he said, men of Judea, listen to me. And he basically said, you killed the wrong guy. The one you killed is now alive and God has made him both Lord and Christ. And he's coming again to bring justice, to make right what has been wrong. And that means you guys are in trouble. And it's what St. Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7. As we've been hearing all those wonderful Acts readings uh, during the season of Easter, right? Whenever we hear 
wonderful reflections of the resurrection on Easter day, you know, in the, the glorious triumph of the empty tomb. And then we hear in these Acts readings, these apostles, they're preaching the Lord Jesus Christ like he's about to come rain down vengeance. It, it, make it make sense? Whenever Stephen preaches Jesus, he preached him in a way that they hated him, that they stoned him to death. And yet before he died, what did Stephen do? He looked up into the heavens and he saw there the exalted and ascended Lord at the right hand of God. In that moment, the Lord Jesus was actually standing and not sitting. And he was standing for the approval of Stephen. Why? Because everything that Stephen said about him was true. The way that he died actually pleased the Lord. Jesus Christ is head over all things. He is returning for judgment. And for the enemies of Christ, that's terrifying. Therefore, Peter's hearers on Pentecost were cut to the heart, weren't they? What shall we do? Now, the world that hates Christ, the world that hates his kingdom will receive no mercy at the hands of the God-man who will cast them into the outer darkness. This is what Paul implies in verse 21 of our epistle lesson. He says that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It's talking about all the forces of the heavenly realm, both angels and demons. He has legions of angel armies at his disposal at any given time to do away with the devil and his hordes and along with those who follow them in sin and unbelief. Jesus is head over all things. Scripture says that God has given judgment uh, the judgment over all things to a man. That's what this ascension means. Upon his resurrection and his ascension, he takes up the authority that belongs to God alone, now both as true God and true man. He holds everything together in the universe by the word of his power. He's running the show. There's a man running the show right now. His name is Jesus. It may not look like it whenever we check our news feeds, but he's using all the events of human history, no matter how tragic they may be, he's using them all to usher in the final judgment and to exercise the ultimate authority that has been given to him as a man. That's where all this is going. And if the ascension means that this is what is to happen at the end of all things, then what assurance do we have this evening that Jesus will not rain down judgment upon us whenever he comes? What certainty can we have that we will not be met with a vengeful and wrathful God-man who shall return in the same way that he ascended, but that we will actually be met with one who is full of mercy? For that, let us meditate more deeply on the words of St. Paul in our epistle because so far the ascension hasn't sounded so much like good news. Let's let Paul finish his thought here in verses 22 through 23. He said, And God put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is why the ascension is good news for you, brothers and sisters. You see, he is head over all things by divine right. There's no disputing that. But he is given as head over all things to the church. In terms of the world, in all the cosmos, he rules all things according to the power of his might. He does so to bring about the judgment of the nations. But in terms of the church, his body, he rules all things according to his tenderness and his mercy and his love. See, he's head over all things, but you are his body. The world cannot say that about Jesus. The world cannot say that it is Christ's body. The angels cannot say that about Christ. The angels cannot say that they are the body of Christ. No, you can. You do. You own that. That's the, re- that's the uniqueness of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You are here tonight because you are his body. And because that's true, let me give you two things that this means for you, and then we'll call it an evening. First, because you are his body, it means that everything that he has belongs to you. All that he has belongs to you. You know, in the scriptures, we see this head and body metaphor in a lot of places, and it, it implies several different things. But one of the most prominent things that it, that it means and that it's getting at is this marriage relationship. In the marriage relationship, we know how this works. Everything that the husband has belongs to the wife and vice versa. That's how it works. And in our relationship with Christ, all that he has, righteousness, the kingdom, the glory, etc., everything that he has belongs to us. And in exchange, what does he get from us? Our sins, which he has dealt with in his death and his resurrection. We don't bring any to, anything to the table in this relationship except for our sins and he has dealt with those. And now this is a completely one-sided relationship, a one-sided marriage. The subjection of all things under Christ's feet, even sin, death, and the devil, that's given to you. Everything that is placed under his feet as a man is placed under ours because we share his exalted flesh. Paul writes about how husbands, as the heads of their wives, are to treat them. In Ephesians 5, same letter, he says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but cherishes and nourishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So husbands consider their wives as their own flesh, because they are. Christ treats you and cares for you as his own flesh. Because you are. He ministers to you through the word and the sacraments and the communion of the church. You know, one of the reasons 
that we know that the sacrament of the altar is the true body and blood of Jesus is because of his exalted humanity. He can and does come to you in a miraculous way because now his humanity has full use of the divine attributes through the ascension. And so here's what he comes to you to do. He comes to tell you that all that he has is yours. When you eat his flesh and you drink his blood, he gives to you forgiveness, life, and salvation. They are the things that belong to him, but now that he bequeaths to you. Why? Because you are his body. And one more thing that this means for you. Because you are his body. This is what I want you to remember most from this evening. Because you are his body, you can never die. You know that old military adage, cut off the head of the snake and the body will die? Is that right, John? Is that how it goes? Okay. Cut off the head of the snake and the body will die. Well, Satan has already tried that. Christ's own physical body has been crucified and raised. His own physical body has ascended to the heavenly places. He has risen again to immortality. Christ will never die again. His physical body can never die again. And what is true of Christ's physical body is true of you. Because you are his body. You're his spiritual body, but his body nonetheless. Because that God-man can never die, it means that you cannot either. Yes, you will, physically, presuming the Lord Jesus delays his return, but that's only temporary. That's only temporary. That body of yours that has been baptized into Christ's own body will be raised to immortality. Jesus has ascended so that you will ascend as well. See, you have that promise as an individual that you will never die. When it comes to physical and spiritual death, death, you have that promise. We also have that promise corporately. And this is good for us to hear as we're, we're coming here from different churches within our circuit. Because Christ can never die, His church can never die. Amen? No matter how many hits she's taken over the years, no matter how bleak things may look in the future, no matter how much the church declines and will continue to do so, no matter how much we scramble and try to come up with new ideas to reach different groups of people, we need to stay grounded here. We need to remember that the church will never die. That's a guarantee. Jesus has promised it. Because where we have the word and the sacraments, we have the church. Where we have the church, we have the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, the head of all things, the head over all things, who gives to his body, the church, the eternal life that he has won. You know, Paul prayed in our epistle lesson this, this evening. He, he prayed that the Ephesian church would know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Because he is our head, what's true of him is true for us. 
He is our inheritance. He is our hope. He is head over all things for us. Always and forever. Christ for us. Yes, this is a coronation ceremony. This is what it means that we have an ascended Jesus who is both God and man. We crown him as Lord of all. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. But what is true of him is true of you. Because you belong to him. Because you are his body. It's his delight to share it all with you. It's his joy to give to you the kingdom so that you may reign with him. And what you have in faith right now, at this very moment, one day he will show you in full when he returns for you. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.